float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. It's such beautiful poetry, and it immediately brings to mind Muhammad Ali. But who came up with that lyrical line? We'll meet one of boxing's most mysterious and misunderstood figures next. You know how great I am? I don't have to tell you about my strategy. I tell let my trainer tell you, Bodini, come here. Bodini, tell him, what are we going to do? You're going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Ah, rumble, young man, rumble. Ah, that's what we're going to do. You heard it. That's my trainer. He'll tell you. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the History Author Show. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and it's so great to have you with us here today, whether you're on iHeartRadio, iTunes, listening on our YouTube channel, wherever you find us, I'm glad you did. In this episode, we are going to lace up our gloves to meet the man in the corner behind two of boxing's greatest. He's a man who motivated Sugar Ray Robinson and then was linked forever with the legendary young Cassius Clay as he transformed into the transcendent sports icon we all know as Muhammad Ali. He was born in the Jim Crow South, far from the cheers we associate with boxing. His name then was Drew Brown Jr. He struggled out of that poverty, struggled out of a broken home, and eventually appeared in several Hollywood films that you may have seen him in, because they include the exploitation epic Shaft and Shaft 2. So how did that man, who's not an athlete at all, transform himself into the man everybody called Bundini? Khalil Camacho, Muhammad Ali's second wife, said, quote, When you talk about Bundini, you are talking about the mouthpiece of Muhammad Ali, an extension of Muhammad Ali's spirit. There would never have been a Muhammad Ali without Drew Bundini Brown. Former heavyweight champion Larry Holmes called Bundini, Ali's right-hand man, and said, Bundini gave Ali his entire heart. And I can tell you from reading this book, it was a really big heart. This enigmatic figure of the sweet science is the subject of today's bio. It's called Bundini. Don't believe the hype. And if you think that the term hype or hype man is a little bit pejorative in this sense, trust me, it's anything but bringing us ringside to meet this poet with a heart of gold is Todd D. Snyder, an associate professor of rhetoric and writing at Siena College in Albany, New York. He also holds a PhD in rhetoric and composition from Ohio University. His previous books include The Rhetoric of Appalachian Identity and Twelve Rounds in Lowe's Gym, Boxing and Manhood in Appalachia. He grew up in West Virginia and is the son of a boxing trainer himself. He really brings life experience and a keen sense of observation to illuminating a man who's been unfairly represented in previous works. And I tell you, when you finish reading Bundini, you realize that Hollywood has just plain done him wrong in movies about Ali. Find Todd D. Snyder online at hillbillyspeaks.com or at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. There's the opening bell. So let's join Todd Snyder and meet the man behind the greatest, Bundini. Here's Bundini himself, describing the moment of divine inspiration behind that iconic phrase. All great fighters had nicknames like Rocky Marciana, The Rock, Smoking Joe Joe Frazier, Sugar Ray Robinson Sugar, 
he was doing road work, and I was asking God what was his nickname. The feeling came to me, call him the way it is. Float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. I'm joined via Skype by Todd D. Snyder, author of Bundini, Don't Believe the Hype. Thank you so much for making the time to go a few rounds with the History Author Show. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you for being on, and also thank you for writing this book, for introducing me to this man who was just so exciting to meet. He was soothing to meet. He was uplifting to meet, inspiring. We're going to talk about how he was Muhammad Ali's inspiration, how he inspired him, and how he got him up for those fights, and how much energy he put into him. And here we go. We're inspiring readers and listeners, hopefully, right now, the exact same way. He's a, he's a motivator, and it motivated me, not only as I'm reading the book, but then to want to speak with you. I want to start with the cover of your book. It features Ali and Bundini facing each other, doing the butterfly war cry at the press conference that I played at the top of this interview, before the first fight with Sonny Liston, and that's a big moment for him. The word don't in the subhead is crossed out, and it's rendered as believe the hype then for the title. So how did that strike through come to be? You don't usually see that on the front of a book. And what does hype and hype man mean in this context? Well, I'm going to take you back to the origins of the book itself. It was published by Hamilcar Publications, and they're a, a publishing outfit out of Boston. They specialize in true crime, boxing, and they do some pop culture stuff, too. And on their website, Kyle Serafine, who is one of the principal publishers at Hemelcar, occasionally he would he would do some blog posts about boxing for their website. And he posted a couple years ago a blog about Bundini being the original hype man. Now, of course, hype man is a term that comes out of hip hop culture. Some folks would think of like Flavor Flav and Public Enemy or, you know, they think of like Proof and Eminem. These guys who sort of serve as the sidekick, the poetic poet laureate muse for the headlining artist. And he did a short blog post saying Bundini was the original archetype for the hype man. And, and apparently it received a lot of traffic on their website. And it got the guys at Hamilcar thinking about, wow, there, there might be some interest from the hip hop community on a book on Bundini, partially because he coined a lot of Muhammad Ali's most famous rhymes particularly float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. So they started looking for a writer who maybe knew a little bit about hip hop culture, knew a little bit about boxing, uh, someone who could write about what it means to be a trainer in that environment. And through their searching, they uh, became connected with Drew Brown III, Bundini's son. And uh, eventually they found me because I'm an English professor at Siena College in Albany, New York. I teach hip hop history classes but I'm the son of a boxing trainer, so I write about both boxing and hip-hop. So when we collaborated early on, we, we kicked around the idea of sort of rescuing Bundini from the shadows of history as someone who was a pre-hip-hop icon. He was there, uh, a part of the Muhammad Ali entourage, the sort of the loudest voice in Ali's corner, coining those rhymes and hyping folks up at the press conferences, as you mentioned. And early on, uh, Bundini's son recommended to us, what if we were to... And if we're going to title the book, Don't Believe the Hype, if we were to cross out the don't and sort of let the reader decide whether or not the hype was real. <laughs> it's up to the reader whether or not they believe Bundini really added something special to Muhammad Ali's career and to his life. 
Uh, he does sometimes get caricatured as a hype man, as a yes man or a cheerleader. So we wanted to play around with those perceptions of Bundini. And it really started with that blog post from Cal Seraphine. And then uh, Drew Timothy Brown III, Bundini's son, recommending that we make it ambiguous for readers. I liked about this book that so many words like that, like the word hype, hype man, the word rhetoric, which is something that you've studied. Mm -hmm. There are many words that you look at and you say, oh, that doesn't mean exactly that thing. That means something a little bit different. <laughs> and that's one of the things with rhetoric and with poetry and with rap lyrics. And for me, right. I know from when I was a kid, that stuck in my head, uh, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, whose head didn't it stick in? Right. And then you look back at it years later, like a song, and like for your students, you know, I in the book, in Bundini, you mentioned they'll, they'll realize a lyric maybe from Eminem didn't mean what they thought it meant the first time. And maybe when you get right. older, you hear, you hear it a little differently. And for me, I said, not only is that about the style of the butterfly and the bee, but think about the butterfly. A butterfly is something that changes. And Ali changes. He goes through this metamorphosis just like a butterfly. Think about bees. We don't want bees to sting us, but we're crazy for honey. They're, they're animals or they're insects that have this duality of nature and that we have this relationship with that, to me, was very similar here to the relationship in Bundini. Don't believe the hype. These two men are rather like that. And for you, it it just is such serendipity as well. You feel the hand of Shorty on you, maybe. <laughs> and people will find out in the book, say, who am I talking about? Who's Shorty? Is he a guy? Is he in the entourage? Is he a boxer? No, he's not. But he, that's Bundini's name for God, right? He calls God Shorty. That's right. And so when you are teaching that class around campus, you mentioned at Siena College, they refer to you as the hip-hop professor. Yes. And you say they could call you worse, right? Right, right. <laughs> I'll take that. And, and the artists will share their knowledge with these students, which I think is, is a great thing to do. It's something I love to do here, something I found here in Bundini. Don't believe the hype. One of those is Chuck D. He discusses Float Like a Butterfly, Sting Like a Bee as a rap lyric and the poetry in it. How did that event also help lead you on this path to writing Bundini? Yeah, before uh, Hamilcar ever contacted me and I, and I formed a relationship with Bundini's son, I was running the program that you just referred to, and uh, it's called Hip Hop Week. We do it every March at Siena College, and we've had a host of hip hop icons come give lectures to our students. So we've had Grandmaster Flash, Chuck D, as you mentioned, uh, Biz Marquee, Master Killer from the Wu-Tang Clan, Sha Rock, who was the first female MC. So all these sort of hip-hop icons come and talk about the history of the genre with my students. Well, the year Chuck D came, it was fun for me because Chuck D is a huge boxing fan. And he was the narrator of that ESPN documentary, Ali Rap. And uh, my students wanted to talk boxing and hip-hop with Chuck. And inevitably, Muhammad Ali came up. And they were asking him whether or not Float Like a Butterfly, Sting Like a Bee was the first rap lyric. And he had been quoted in an article saying that it was. And he said, sure, absolutely. I, he said, I have no problem if people want to consider Muhammad Ali sort of the formula for the original MC, the original rapper. So I piped in and said, well, that means, you know, Bundini's the original hype man. And he got a kick out of that. And I'll never forget it. Chuck, he said to me, well, someone should write a book on Bundini. <laughs> now, I'd be lying to you if I said I'll start working on the book the next day. That wasn't how it happened. But a couple years later, when I was contacted by Hamilcar, it did feel like a shorty moment, as you suggested, <laughs> that, you know, I was destined to write this book one way or another. And by the way, I wanted to tell listeners, because they're hearing us speak and they're hearing a couple of the clips that I played. 
I decided to go with the Bundini, with the U pronunciation, because that's how people will be able to pick up this book. Hopefully, if I do my job and, and express how interesting your book was and draw people in, when they look it up, that's how they'll look up the spelling, B-U-N-D-I-N-I. And you had an interesting observation about that, about the other ways it's pronounced. As we heard in that clip, we heard Muhammad Ali would say Bodini. So how is that? Why is the difference in that name? You know, you got to remember, Muhammad Ali grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, I'm from Appalachia as well. I grew up in West Virginia, so the accent isn't that different. And, you know, people say Louisville, Louisville. They say it all these different ways. That's just the way the champ pronounced it. Bodini is how he, he referred to Bundini. So, you know, his son taught me that if you were a part of the Ali entourage, I'm talking about Freddie Pacheco, Luis, Angelo Dundee, all the guys who were sort of a part of the day in and day out. They called him Bodini because that's how the champ pronounced it. But the rest of the world uh, <laughs> pronounced it Bundini, and you spelled it correctly. So, you know, his son has tried really hard to trick me into saying Bodini because he's like, you know my father. You're his biographer. You have to say it the right way. But I really can't trick myself into saying it that way. Bundini is just how I grew up saying it, so it's very hard to break that habit. <laughs> Still an honor to be asked to pronounce it that way. and Welcome into the entourage, so to speak. Yes, Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I want to go back to that moment where Drew Brown transforms into Bundini. He's a steward in the U.S. Navy, and as legend has it, a group of girls in an Indian port city are crying this word out to him, Bundini. The interesting thing to me is here's a moment in the man's life, and he's young at the time, and you think of, in fact, he's too young really to be in the Navy, right? Right. Give us an idea what path led this young man who's raised so poor in Midway, Florida. His mother leaves. She really has no choice but to leave, leaves him and his father and takes his younger brother with him, shatters his family. So what path does he follow from that upbringing, that seventh grade education, being really poor to halfway around the world to be standing at that deck railing? on the other side of the world and hear those women cry out this word that becomes his nickname. <laughs> you know, when I took on this project, I wanted to write about Drew Bundini Brown, the man, and I wanted to show his childhood, his adolescence. I wanted to show him sort of becoming the cultural icon that we in the boxing world know him as. So that required that I go back to Sanford, Florida in his childhood. It required me to go back and look at a pretty traumatic family picture. His father was abusive in a lot of ways. He was an alcoholic. His mother abandoned him effectively when he was a kid just to get out of that relationship. So there was a lot of trauma in his childhood. And he grew up extremely poor. And he grew up in a part of Florida where in Seminole County, the Ku Klux Klan was still a, a pretty dominant presence in the community. So really the, the turning point in his life was when uh, Naval Air Station Sanford was founded in 1942, I believe it was. And he's just a teenager. He lies about his age and signs up for the Navy. And the reason that he signs up for the Navy is that in town, you know, he was a shoeshine boy when he was a young kid. He would see these naval officers walk through town in their fancy suits with their bow ties and their white pressed uh, slacks and the medals, uh, you know, on their uniforms. And he just thought they looked so cool. So he wanted a uniform like that. So that was sort of the <laughs> what drew him to the Navy. He didn't have much of a home life to escape, really. So he was sort of this nomadic, lost soul who found himself in the Navy when he really wasn't even legally old enough to be in the Navy. And it took him around the world 
on this fantastic journey that it's like something out of a Dickens novel. This kid sets out on the, you know, and travels the seas <laughs> as a teenager. And you're right. It's in a port in India where these girls call Bundini to him. And I have several friends who are from India and we've tried to sort of locate the exact word that they were saying. And it roughly translates to lover, boyfriend. That, that was sort of the connotation. They were flirting with him. And one of his commanding officers heard the cat calls and uh, they they teased him. They nicknamed him Bundini Brown because of the alliteration. It sounded funny. So he was Bundini Brown for the rest of his tour in the Navy. So it's ironic that he gets the nickname that we we know him by today all the way across the world in India, <laughs> far from Sanford, Florida. It's also interesting that he carries it and accepts it. And I think that's part of his personality where some people just don't want to be nicknamed. And for him, the the lyricism of it that you just mentioned, the double Bs, we usually have alliteration when we have comic book names, right? Bruce Banner and Fantastic Four. The music of it is something he hears so well, despite, as you write in Bundini, Don't Believe the Hype, that he can't read very well when he when he's young. He has that stunted education, ends up joining the Navy, as we're talking about now. Then he goes to the Merchant Marines. But he still goes and tries his hand at writing. He still acts. He's in the cult classic Shaft. He is just not limited to anything in the world. He's not limited to the world of being in the Merchant Marines and the Navy. He's not limited to any of these things that we might think of when we think boxing promoter. In fact, when you look at him, just the pictures in your book, you see his outfit still invokes that Navy uniform that he was uh, so enamored with when he was a kid. And he's wearing that Star of David because of his wife. He just defies convention every step. Even his even his hair and the way he gets that bald patch is so distinctive and unique. He yeah. ends up running with big names like George Plimpton, Oprah Winfrey, Steven Spielberg, all these people across the course of his life. He's a little bit like Forrest Gump, it occurred to me. He just shows up everywhere in this yeah. period. Now, you said he was a blessing to you, a blessing from Shorty, which I say with all due respect, as a way to write about somebody who's just so fascinating. But I wondered, when you're sitting down and writing it and editing it, how do you manage to keep him within your narrative ring when he does really refuse to conform? Well, you know, there was a quote I found from Angelo Dundee. And I interviewed Angelo's son, Jim, to talk about his relationship because he was the other guy in the corner with Bundini when they were working those Ali fights. And his father had said, you know, if you try to understand Bundini, you'll drive yourself crazy. You just have to accept that this man is sort of a paradox. He's enigmatic. He isn't one thing. He's this unique, one-of-a-kind figure. And I interviewed Tim Witherspoon, who was a sparring partner for Ali late in Ali's career. And Witherspoon said to me, there was never a Bundini before, and there probably will never be one again. He was a true American original. And that's the truth. I mean, here you have a guy who could barely read and write, who is known for his poetry. And, and, the, and he was, in some ways, Muhammad Ali's ghostwriter for a lot of those famous rhymes. Here you have a guy who never boxed as an amateur or a professional who worked with not only Muhammad Ali, but the great Sugar Ray Robinson, maybe the two greatest fighters to ever box. Bundini is the sort of the, the connective link between the two. Here's a guy who, like I said, never went to college, never took acting classes, but is in those Shaft movies. He's Willie, the gangster from Harlem. He was in a movie by Steven Spielberg. He was in, uh, I think, six feature films. He just wasn't one thing. He was all of those things. So as a writer, what a protagonist. This guy who can be the most sweet, gentle, 
kindest person in the world, but also has his demons. This guy who, like you said, is sort of the Zelig character that just pops up in these big moments in history. You got to think he lived in Harlem for several years and got to know all the great Harlem Renaissance writers. He was a part of the jazz scene when he was in his early 20s. He knew Miles Davis. I mean, he just hung around with some pretty exceptional people. And everybody who I interviewed who knew him loved him. And you could feel the love and, and affection in their voice. You know, if he was in a room, he was sort of the dominant voice in the room. Other than Muhammad Ali, I think, you know, he was sort of the star of the entourage. And he just loves people so much. And Ali in particular, you hear that clip of him doing the butterfly chant. And when he says that rumble, young man, rumble, yeah. I invite people to go back, look at it and hear it again. Because you can hear, even if you don't see and you see it too, but... There's so much affection in it. He's not somebody that is just mouthing the words. So I could see where it's a gift for you as a writer, because as a reader, I never felt like, oh, gosh, wait, this guy's doing something else now. I thought, what adventure is he going to get to next? I was going to mention that thing about the Superman comic book before I saw that you had it in Bundini. Don't believe the hype. But <laughs> it's something. Here's a guy who really is a comic book character or could be a comic book character. You almost wouldn't believe him if he was fiction. In fact, I could probably guarantee you wouldn't because his life is yeah. just so varied and You'd, you'd sit down in the pitch meeting and they'd say, who is this guy? And you'd say, well, I don't know. I don't have one word to tell you what he is. His resume wouldn't, wouldn't fit on that. And yet people would want him. People would hire him. Imagine him going to his future Jewish in-laws and saying, I want to marry your daughter. This is not easy for anybody to do, this much less for a black man with no prospects way back then. Yeah, think about this. I mean, really, maybe the most fascinating component of his of the story is not his relationship with Ali, but his relationship with Rhoda Palestine, who uh, was a white Jewish woman from Brighton Beach, New York. And the fact that, you know, a white Jewish woman was able to marry an African-American man from Sanford, Florida during that time period was pretty exceptional. And here we have this converted black Jew who hangs around with the most famous black Muslim in America or maybe the world in Muhammad Ali. He was just this really interesting collection of contradictions and brilliance that was just fascinating to write about. And I think when when folks read the book, they're going to say the same thing that Chuck D said is, why didn't someone write a book on this guy sooner? Because yeah. he had just that an amazing American life. And for me, some of the most fun parts of the book to write about were his relationships with his Orthodox Jewish in-laws and the ways in which that dynamic fleshed out was just as fun to write about as his relationship with Sugar Ray or Muhammad Ali. Any of those could have been books in themselves or a New Yorker article. There's a picture in Bundini, Don't Believe the Hype, of him kissing his mother-in-law. Yeah. And it reminded me a little bit of that Archie Bunker picture. And they're clearly joking around or at least it seems to me that way and knowing from having read the book yeah. but he's just kissing her forehead here's this just giant of a man big bear of a man and <laughs> it's just so much fun and if you just found that picture sitting on the street you'd say who is this what what's the story behind this photograph and that's what he was to me that he just wanders out there and he does things and you mentioned contradictory and you also said african-american and he didn't like that term. He would say, well, he, he just didn't believe in race. Right. He just refused to acknowledge that. I mean, he knew that there were problems, but he, he said there are good people and bad people, this kind of thing. And then he went out and lived it. And I just think that's something that's yet another skill of this man, that he could contradict you. He could challenge you the way he 
challenges Ali, as we're going to speak about in a minute, and yet not offend you, not sound like he was just being high and mighty or being rude or, oh, you just want to tell me not to do something. Or obviously I didn't mean that as an insult when I called you that. Obviously you didn't mean that as an insult here referring to him. And nobody has that reaction. No one says, well, I didn't mean that as an insult. Why why are you giving me a hard time of this? And uh, Ali has some of those moments with him. But even then he deals (laughs) with it so beautifully. Well, it's interesting because if Bundini was listening to this podcast, he would have definitely got on me for saying the term African-American. He hated it. He didn't like that term at all. He said there's one race, the human race. And it was one of the things he and Ali did argue about. You got to remember Ali, 21, 22 years old, joins the Nation of Islam. And, you know, their views on race relations were very different than Bundini's. Uh, Bundini would walk right into a white only restaurant and ask for food. And if they kicked him out, he dealt with it. But he was going to do it because he just thought it was ludicrous. He thought, you know, there's good people and bad people. And he told his son, it doesn't take long to figure out the difference between the two. That's how he viewed the world, good people and bad people. So he was someone who had unique ideas about race, unique ideas about religion. As you mentioned, he called God shorty and he believed in a God who was there for the little guy, the underdog. And he loved religious services. He would take his son to synagogue. He would take his son to Catholic churches. He would take his son to mosques. He just loved celebrating the idea of God and his personal God. He called Shorty. (laughs) He just seems as if he would jump right into anything and do it. And that's why having read the book, speak about a great job as a biographer. And I'm not just blowing smoke your way, but when you read a book and you have the man in your head, it goes for a novel, too, but here's a real man. I did right away. I thought, wait a minute. I read he said that about African-American, and I was glad that that was something that you recalled, too. Yeah. This is how he looked at the world, and he would tell you his perspective, and people listened. Those words in the mouth of somebody else would just sound ridiculous. Why did that guy say that to me? I don't want, I don't want him on the bus anymore. Get him out. Right. And he had such wisdom. I don't mean it in a condescending way. I look up to the guy. I think sometimes we assume, oh, he had a poor background. It's just easy to say, well, there's wisdom in that. This is genuine wisdom. I'm not kidding here. Somebody who goes in there, goes into a restaurant, and one of the stories you tell here in Bondini is the restaurant owner says, well, you can go in the back. The food's the same, you know, but we can't have you in here. And the guy is is clearly apologetic, but he Mm -hmm. is going to do what he's going to do and enforce segregation. He doesn't want to lose his business, blah, blah, blah. He goes back outside and the entourage is giving him a hard time. And Ali's yelling at him. This is why we have to be separate. You were stupid. And he says something so wise. He says, that man's going to go home tonight and he's going to reflect on that. And he may feel shame. He may feel guilty. He may change. Maybe he won't. But if I didn't go in there and do that and have that moment and put myself out there, it would never have happened. And then the next place they do let them in and he brings in everyone and he stands up in that first restaurant and says the heavyweight champion of the world and he can't get a get a sandwich and a cup of coffee in this place. And again, <laughs> calling to that thing inside of everybody and not lecturing, not raising himself above them, but calling them and motivating them. And that's the big word about him. He's just such a motivator. Motivate people to be their best, to be the greatest in the case of Muhammad Ali. Yeah, I mean, you did a wonderful job with that story. It was one of my favorite stories to write about in the book. And there are several like that in there where Bundini, he called it planting the seed. He believed that when you did the right thing, you planted the seed in the mind of the other person. And even if they reacted in a negative way, you sort of, you opened the door for them to see the light, to see Shorty's way. And his son was big on talking about that aspect of his dad's uh, philosophy. 
You know, Bundini, uh, with his wife, Rhoda Palestine, attempted to write a book on philosophy, and I was able to read some of those transcripts, and we were able to use some of that writing for dialogue. It was fascinating. He wrote poetry. Of course, he couldn't type on the typewriter, but his wife would type the words, and he would say them to her, and they would work together in the manuscripts. And in so much of his writings that have never been published found their way into the book. You know, He wrote a lot about his time with Sugar Ray, and some of that stuff shows up in the book, too. It was just fascinating to sort of see that private window into his mind. I do think sometimes in the movies and in the pop culture, he gets painted as sort of a, a jokester, a court jester. But he was a deep philosophical thinker, and he was a poet, and most poets are. And I wanted to bring that side of him out. I mean, he could be contradictory, of course. He had his demons, too. But boy, he was a unique thinker and uh, an original thinker. He marched to the beat of his own drum. You mentioned Sugar Ray. And so let's get into that, because one of the things I love reading a book like Bundini, Don't Believe the Hype, is you look back at your history in your life or at the history of somebody here where we see from this little seed, speaking of seeds, it grows really big and changes not just his life or those around him, but the world and boxing. He simply chooses a place to get a haircut. And I know that the barbershop would have been a very important center there in Harlem at the time. But here he just walks into Sugar Ray's Golden Gloves Barbershop in Harlem. What's the significance of that place in Bundini's life? And how is his career different? How is boxing different if he chooses another spot to start getting his haircut and hang out? Yeah, it's so interesting because after he finishes up his time in the Merchant Marines, he and a friend of his, Norman Henry, end up in Harlem together. Bundini is a country boy from Florida, but he ends up in the big city. He just happens to rent this tiny little apartment that is above Sugar Ray's Golden Glove Barbershop. And at that point in Sugar Ray Robinson's career, he had already achieved a lot and he had sort of retired and he had decided he was going to be a businessman and he was going to be in showbiz. He was he tap danced on, you know, <laughs> talk shows and he did a little tour in Europe, but he bought up a whole block of real estate in Harlem. Sugar Ray did. And there was a dry cleaning business, a lingerie store, a restaurant, a nightclub. And uh, Sugar Ray was sort of a proprietor. It was all black owned businesses in the community. And Sugar Ray had done a lot to sort of clean up this disheveled part of Harlem. Well, Bundini lived right above that barbershop. So he had that conk hairstyle, which was very popular during the jazz era. So he would go there quite often to get that, that hairdo maintained. So he got to know some of the barbers there. And if you know anything about Sugar Ray Robinson, his barber was in his corner to fix his hair in between rounds. So Sugar Ray cared a great bit about style. So he got to know some of the boxing people by hanging around that barbershop that was underneath his apartment. And it's in that barbershop that he meets Johnny Honeyboy Bratton, who's the former welterweight champ of the world. They form a little friendship, and that friendship does inevitably lead him to Sugar Ray, and he becomes a member of that team. He really late into his 20s, <laughs> with no boxing background whatsoever, he joins the great Sugar Ray Robinson's entourage. That's amazing, too. Yet another amazing thing that, that he right. just is not an athlete, never boxes around. In fact, you mentioned Drew Brown the third, who he nicknamed Sneezer, by the way. That's something in the book. If, think about it. Why would he name the kid Sneezer? And it's not because he was sneezing. He didn't have a cold, the, the baby, but he decides to give him that name for just a wonderful reason. And his son, Drew Brown the third, 
told you only time I ever saw my father run was in shaft two. <laughs> so he is zero athletic ability. Yeah. He, they and, had a uh, family reunion one time and they were playing softball and he said he didn't know how to hold the bat. And he said they all laughed at him. They couldn't believe he couldn't <laughs> even hold a baseball bat. Uh, he couldn't dance. Apparently he wasn't a good dancer. His weapon was the English language. Nobody could out talk him, not even Muhammad Ali. And in fact, when Sugar Ray introduces Bundini to Ali, he says, I finally met someone who can out talk you, Cassius. <laughs> and one of the things you call him in the book, one of those other words that I mentioned before about reclaiming words and making it clear what they mean in a rhetorical style is hustler. Yeah. And you explain that he hustled. And to me, I, I guess I'm a little bit older. I'm just turned 51. So to me, you like the hustler, right? You think Charlie Hustle. You think I always say when I see someone walk across the street and I'm sitting there in my car, I say, yeah, some people mope across and they pretend they don't see you and they almost want to stop in the middle of the road. And some people run, you know, or when a waitress, being a Greek myself, I say, you know, you want to see hustle from people. And I, I try to hustle. Yeah. So to me, it doesn't have a negative connotation. But I know that for many people, that sounds like you're trying to cheat, you're trying to lie, you're selling somebody a lemon car. <laughs> what does that term mean and what did that skill mean in Bundini's life? You know, it's interesting when uh, I interviewed Gene Kilroy, who was Muhammad Ali's business manager, and Gene was the guy who coordinated the training camps. So he was a very important person for me to talk to because Gene was there day in and day out and, and had to deal with Bundini in a lot of ways. And Gene said to me, in writing about Bundini, you're talking about a guy who didn't have very many advantages in life. But every advantage that possibly came his way, he seized it and maximized it. That's a hustler. A hustler is someone who never lets an opportunity go by. And, you know, when Sugar Ray Robinson brings him on the, the entourage, he's running errands and doing very menial, kind of low-level work. He works his way up to the top of the entourage because he hustles. Same thing with Ali. He gave the champ everything he had. And he was there to wake him up for road work. He was there to shadow him through every exercise, to motivate him after fights when things didn't go the champ's way. He basically was on call for Muhammad Ali 24-7 and really sacrificed much of his life in service to Muhammad Ali. So, yeah, the term hustler does have a negative connotation, but much like everything else about Bundini, it depends on how you look at it. Here was a guy who basically, you know, like you said, he was the run-across-the-street guy. He was the guy who wasn't going to mope or drag his feet. He made the most out of the opportunity, and he turned it into other opportunities. So you have to admire that that side of his personality, despite maybe some of his flaws or some of the things about him that weren't perfect. It, it wasn't for a lack of effort. He was a hustler. He was a worker. You mentioned about him giving so much of his life to Ali. He's also not getting rich doing that. People think that you're in the entourage. Well, maybe he's there because he gets the he gets last year's Cadillac or he gets you know the old ring that the champ doesn't want anymore. He's not being paid, especially later when the Nation of Islam guys are trying to push him out. So it's it's really for the love of what he is doing and what he sees inside Ali that he sticks with that team. You know, it's funny because Bundini really wasn't motivated by money. He could have made money so many different ways off his celebrity. He was he was very famous during the prime of his time with the champion. I mean, he was the guy next to the guy, the most famous athlete in the world. And he did have a couple side hustles. He had a, a nightclub called Bundini's World. He had some other little fighters that he had trained, you know, James Quicktillis, uh, Jeff Merritt. There were a couple other guys he worked with as well. But really, much of his life was in service to Ali. And, 
he really wasn't there for the money. I mean, when Ali was in exile, you have to remember the narrative wasn't when will Ali be back? I mean, most people thought he would never be back. And there was a period during exile. Muhammad Ali said, I'll never fight again. And he was instructed by the Nation of Islam to never fight again. Uh, in fact, when he returns from exile, that was one of the issues that caused problems with the nation as Ali couldn't stay away from the sport. You know, his love was his passion was the ring. So, yeah, Bundini was there even in the tough times when the champ didn't have much to give him. I mean, Ali had money troubles at various points in his career as well. And Bundini remained loyal during those time during those rough times as well. He was there the day Ali turned himself in for a refusing induction into the United States Army. He's always right there with an important word. And I know that there's a quote in your trailer or a clip, rather, a soundbite. The lady says, everyone needs a Bundini, even though there's only one. Yeah. <laughs> of course, from our point of view and from reading this book, I don't know how you'd match such a, a well, full-lived life. But he's one of those people that if it wasn't fiction, you'd be disturbed by it. You know, you'd say, oh, come on, this is that old trope that, uh, you know, this guy shows up in a life and he's just there to advance the plot. And he doesn't, he, nobody could be, <laughs> nobody could be just the, just the right man who says the right thing and, and gets you up against the wall and gets you out there for the fight. Yeah. But he does. And he does that so many times. I mentioned that Muhammad Ali Superman team up when they fight aliens. Right. And to me in the seventies, this seemed totally reasonable. And <laughs> I was glad you mentioned it. That gives you an idea how big Ali was, right? They called him the black Superman. In fact, that's right. That was the song. And think about it. You know, Bundini was a character in the comic book, and his son said that was so cool to him as a kid. You know, my dad's fighting Superman. I mean, how cool <laughs> is that? It's an amazing life. And I'll say this. A lot of biographies, you read them, and they, they sound self-serving, or they sound like you're trying to sort of paint someone in a, you know, this redeeming, picturesque light. That really was never my intention. I wanted to show his flaws. I mean, Ali fired him about a half dozen times. He and the champ disagreed on a lot of things, and they had their tiffs, they had their arguments, they had their ups and downs. I tried to highlight those moments, too, where Ali and Bundini butted heads and weren't getting along so well, because I wanted people to see the real picture. I mean, he wasn't a saint, but he was extraordinary, and, and he was a one-of-a-kind. And as, as far as motivation goes, as far as I'm concerned, he had his PhD in motivational speaking. He was an exceptional motivator. And everyone I talked to who was around him, the fighters he worked with, said there was no one like him. Uh, James Quicktillis told me, you know, he could make the hairs on your arms stand up when he talked to you, when he would get to hyping you up. And there was a reason Muhammad Ali kept him around for 21 years. Ali was not a dumb man. He was super intelligent. He wouldn't have kept him around if it wasn't for his benefit. The thing that I was getting to about that 1978 comic book team up is the moment that these two men, that Bondini and Ali meet, because when he meets him, he motivates him, Bundini does, to share with him. He's somebody that Ali immediately trusts and confesses to that he is a bit afraid. He's very afraid, actually. He's terrified. He's scared. He's going to fight Sonny Liston for the title. He's the challenger at the time, Ali. He's not the man that we would see everywhere in the 70s and in the early 80s that everybody knew who he was, and he was just so braggadocious, so confident. You, you can't imagine that he would ever not be confident and that he would never think that he wasn't the greatest, wasn't going to be able to win. And so he, this here's right. when he meets him. That's that first meeting when, when he's a privately terrified Cassius Clay, a very young man. And not only that, there's a moment in the fight when Ali wants to throw in the towel. And 
it's a little bit of reverse of that Rocky scene, and that's part of the inspiration, part of the legacy of Bondini is, is that movie and these scenes. But he wants to throw in the towel, stop the fight, Ali. And it's Bondini that says to him, you're blind for mysterious reasons that you'll maybe talk about. But he says, you're going to get out there. Keep fighting. You're not giving it up. And he realizes in that moment, you may not get another shot at the champ. That uh, Liston knows that, that you're hitting him and he knows that he may not win. And so you've got you've to make the most of this moment. It's just such a powerful moment. And he doesn't even know the guy that well yet. And they don't know each other that well yet. So bring us back to that moment of their team up. Yeah, I think really, to be honest, one of the most remarkable uh, aspects of this story is that Bundini doesn't join the team until right before Ali fights the unbeatable Sonny Liston, who at the time was maybe for your younger uh, audience members was sort of the Mike Tyson of the day. He was this street guy, this gangster, this tough guy who knocked everyone out in the first couple of rounds. And nobody in the boxing community thought Cassius Clay had a chance. They they thought Liston was going to obliterate him, and he was this cocky uh, country boy from Louisville, Kentucky, who was about to really fight a real fighter. And if you go back and look at Ali's career, his two previous fights before the Liston fight, he didn't look very good. He uh, had a tough fight against uh, Doug Jones, and then he was knocked on his butt against uh, Henry Cooper over in London. So Ali has sort of two bad fights in a row right before he fights this unbeatable monster of a guy, Sonny Liston, and Bundini is there to sort of build up uh, his psychology, the mental makeup of getting himself ready to fight this guy who everyone thinks is going to kill him. Here is where I think being the son of a boxing trainer helped me as a writer because I realized I would watch my dad do that kind of things for kids, helping helping build up their confidence and giving them the, the mental toughness to get in there and fight. You know, Bundini sort of uh, helps craft that original strategy for the Sonny Liston fight. And Bundini tells him, the only way to scare a tough guy is to act crazy. And, and they do a masterful job of convincing Liston that they're out of their mind. The way in and the press conferences are very theatrical. And uh, Bundini and Ali rehearsed all that stuff. So they they were very much putting on an act trying to psych out the bully, you know, the playground bully. And as you mentioned, you know, Liston and his team had some very controversial techniques that they would use. Something was obviously put on Liston's gloves and rubbed into Muhammad Ali's eyes. He was blinded for one round in the fight. And when he gets back to the corner, he says, cut the gloves. I can't see. I can't see. And Bundini tells him, you're not fighting for yourself anymore. And, you know, you're fighting for something bigger than who you are. You're a symbol. And Ali gets out there and luckily the sweat washes the stuff out of his eyes. And the rest is, of course, history. But you have to remember, Bundini joins the team at the perfect time. He was the last person to enter the entourage. And it was at the most critical moment in Ali's career. If he would have lost that fight or if he had quit on the stool, he may never have got a title shot again. You're enjoying my conversation with Todd D. Snyder, author of Bundini, Don't Believe the Hype. Find our guest online at hillbillyspeaks.com, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Gordon Marino writes in the Wall Street Journal, quote, Mr. Snyder writes lyrically, and his research appears to be impeccable. It's hard to believe that anyone has slipped through his interview net. Now, Todd, I want to talk about the idea of you going and getting people to open up. We talked about how you spoke to Drew Brown III, but when I think about speaking to somebody and about research, I think most people are so protected, and most people don't want to tell you what their inner fears are. We just mentioned that there with Ali and with Bundini. 
And it's something to do with manhood as well. And since that's an interest of yours coming from that long line, is it five or six generations of West Virginia coal miners? It's hard to think of a, of a tougher, more manly, physical job than that. Yeah. And you reflect on the meaning of manhood. And boxing is a place to do that. And the fact that Ali right away tells this guy he doesn't even know that I'm scared to go out there. That's something you won't hear. And another thing that Bundini says is, says this to Drew Brown the third. you have many fathers in your life. You'll have many fathers. I'm just one father, that I'm your biological father, as we would call it. Yeah. And he becomes a, a father figure, not just to Ali, but to so many people, anybody he would see, it seems. You mentioned the money. He, he's a guy who would reach in his pocket if he had money and try to get get rid of it as fast as he could, it seems like. So he's really, um, uh, he's really somebody who does that mentoring. And as a professor yourself, as somebody who teaches young people, has this wonderful hip-hop week where you can have artists come in there and inspire young people. What does that mean to you about Ali as a man that Bundini comes into his life at just the right moment and pushes him to be the greatest, to grow up really fast right there when the, when the man is counting, when he's, when he's blinded, sitting there, wanting to run home? Right. We got to remember uh, early in Ali's career, what he was known for was he would predict the rounds that he was going to knock out his opponents. And often those predictions came true. He claimed he was going to drop Archie Moore in four. So he even made it rhyme. And he did stop Archie Moore in the fourth round. So he had pulled off a couple of those predictions. And there were folks in the, the New York State Boxing Athletic Commission who thought Ali was fixing the fights. Because, you know, calling the round you're going to knock someone out is a pretty difficult thing to do in boxing. Yeah. So when Bundini yeah. meets Muhammad Ali for the first time, he says, man, you're a phony. You're a con artist. You're fixing those fights. Because, you know, he had been with Sugar Ray Robinson for seven years, and he had never seen Sugar Ray do anything like that. And Sugar Ray at the time was the greatest fighter in history uh, and maybe still is. And uh, he calls Ali a phony the first time he ever meets him. <laughs> and they argue back and forth a little bit. And finally, uh, the young Cassius Clay says to him, hey, look, I'm scared every time I get in the ring. That's the truth. I work hard. I pray. I prepare myself. But, yeah, I'm scared. I don't know if I'm going to do those predictions. And I know, you know, if I ever lose, they're going to run me out of the country. And that's when Bundini really takes a liking to him. Because Bundini was the kind of guy who wasn't afraid of showing his emotions. He would cry at the drop of a hat. He would kiss you right on the mouth. He didn't care if you were a man, woman, child, whatever. He was someone who loved openly and affectionately. And when he saw that side of the young Cassius Clay, that's when he knew he wanted to work with him because he had the guts to admit that he was afraid. And that was one of the lessons he taught Ali in that first list in training camp is that he would say, it's okay. Fear is fuel. You use it. You use it to get up in the morning to get the gas and do the road work. You use it to hit the bag harder to do extra set of setups or push-ups, you know, for, for Bundini, fear was a good thing. And being in tune with that was a good thing because you were alive, that you had feelings. And, you know, that was part of the philosophy he imparted to Muhammad Ali. And I know that as, as the son of a boxing trainer, that every fighter has fear. And it's just how they deal with that fear that distinguishes the good fighters from the great fighters. And, you know, in some ways, Bundini was a teacher. You know, he taught Ali a lot. And, he, you know, he didn't teach him how to throw a jab or he didn't teach him how to counter, uh, you know, uh, his opponent's punches. He, he taught him different things. In Bundini, you quote two-time heavyweight champion George Foreman as saying he thinks Bundini was the source of Muhammad Ali's spirit. 
And since you did box as a teenager and in college, you were a USA boxing certified trainer. I wanted to ask that as a student of the game, you're the perfect person to have written this book. And you said the the serendipity that led to you being the person because of your wide area of expertise. Nobody, I guess, could match up to all the things that, that are involved in the life of Bundini. But you were, as a student, able to look at him and see things and see things in the quotes of people like George Foreman that enabled you to have observations that other authors wouldn't have. You know, George Foreman is a guy also very, very poetic and a lot of boxers, they'll, they'll speak in, in flowery terms, maybe, or things that are subtle that I wouldn't get, but that you did get and that therefore you can offer to your readers. So speak about that. What are the things that you got from these interviews that you did that you said, Oh, I know what that, I know exactly what that means. And maybe just like you did with Chuck D at what I imagine was just a cafeteria table, you picked up something that right. the average bear wouldn't have known. And therefore you offer your readers a richer experience here in Bundini. Don't believe the hype. When you grow up in boxing gyms, like I did, I mean, my whole life was watching my dad train fighters, going to fights on the weekend, watching fighters go through training camps, then watching the fight itself. So my the lens I view boxing is from the corner. I've always viewed boxing through the eyes of a, a, a trainer. And as you mentioned, I, I helped my father train fighters uh, for a period of time as well. So for me, uh, you know, that's how I view boxing. That's the way I think of boxing, through training camps, through those grueling days getting ready for a fight. So when I talk to guys like Tim Witherspoon, who was in training camp with Ali, or Larry Holmes, or even George Foreman, who faced him, I do think I have a sense of the sport that maybe other folks maybe don't have, or at least a, a viewpoint on the sport, because I come from the, that background. And, you know, watching my dad in the locker room with fighters, I know what that feels like, that moment before you head out there to the ring. I, I understand those emotions and those feelings. As far as George Foreman, you mentioned his name. He was sort of the big surprise for me when I interviewed George. I didn't realize that he had such a close relationship with Bundini and that they'd been friends years prior to that famous fight in Zaire where, you know, Ali and Foreman face off. Hearing the, the about the dynamics of their friendship was something I really wanted to bring to life for my readers because I think most of us think of Ali and Foreman as rivals. Well, Bundini was sort of a friend with Foreman and Ali. And uh, that friendship triangle that, that shows up in Zaire, Africa, was something I, w I really wanted to bring to life for my readers, because I don't think a lot of boxing fans realize how close Foreman was to Bundini. He seems to have known right when to go in, Bundini did, and, and reach out to somebody and be welcomed in. It's it, it just, I keep saying this again and again, I hope that it'll stimulate people to want to go and pick up the book. The relationships with people are so unique, and it teaches us so much about ourselves, and I'm somebody who tries to be a better man all the time. I don't always succeed. You, you've mentioned a couple times that Bundini wasn't perfect, that he had his flaws, he had his demons. Well, he was human, but he learned from them, right? And so that's an important thing that you find here throughout this book. And he's just so honest, and it's tough as a biographer. You, you say in the beginning, hey, I'm not, I'm not non-biased here. I'm, I'm, I really do like the guy, yeah. and I want to present him as he was without having to go find every rumor maybe about him or, or focusing on all the negative things because there is so much good. doesn't mean that the negative things aren't in there. We know the guy's life. But the important thing I think about your book is 
it balances so much of the just junk and outright lies and distortions that have come before. So I think it's about time that we got this book that tells us the true story of the man, gives us the accurate portrait. Because one of the things about there not being a book written about him before was that so many things stood out there that were just lies and historical flourishes and things from Hollywood. For instance, the story of Bundini and Ali we find in previous books, they all talk about this incident supposedly where he stole his belt right and then in the 2001 movie ali they cast him as a heroin addict right and you you mentioned in bundini don't believe the hype that his son drew the third stood up in the theater and, and shouted that's not true yeah. so to me this feels like balancing this historical record because people have just taken him maybe they've seen one of those clips of shaft or something sure. they they didn't take him seriously they didn't understand as you do from having that corner eye view the view from the corner just how important he was right. so what were some of these things that were screwed up in previous tellings of the man's life yeah now here's the thing about uh Bundini there's usually one of three things written about him and if you were to go look at all the great Muhammad Ali articles and books there's usually a little section about Bundini because he was Ali's sidekick. And usually they, they give him credit for doing float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. They mention that he was an alcoholic, and he was. Bundini's father was an alcoholic. That disease runs in the family. It's something that they've had to struggle with. You know, and Ali didn't drink. He didn't smoke. Ali was a member of the Nation of Islam. Bundini was a Jew. And so, like, those are the things that they get written about. And usually it gets painted that he was this sort of wild, loose cannon that was sort of in Ali's corner that Ali had to rein in. Some of those stories are true. Some of those stories are half true. He was a guy who loved the women. He loved the nightlife. He loved nightclubs and jazz joints. He did like to drink and have a good time. He did smoke marijuana. He was, you know, he was, a, you know, that kind of guy for sure. No doubt about it. And even his marriage to Rhoda Palestine, it only lasted just over five years. They did stay in touch and were close for years and years afterwards, even though they were divorced. So he had sort of this revolving door of girlfriends that were always a part of the scene. All that's true, but all that's already been written about. What I wanted to show was the full picture, the panoramic of a man. He was more than his drinking habits. He was more than this guy who was allegedly stole Muhammad Ali's belt and sold it either for money or for drugs or whatever. You know, there's lots of these stories out there, you know, most of them. There isn't much truth to them whatsoever. When you talk to the people who were really a part of the entourage, when you talk to the people who are very close to Muhammad Ali, you get a more full picture of what happened. As far as the belt thing goes, which is one of the famous Bundini stories out there, Bundini had been fired because of some of his antics. Uh, the Nation of Islam thought he was a bad representation to be a part of Ali's corner. Not only was he a black Jew, he was married to a white woman, and you know he had a, a, a pretty obvious drinking problem. So they didn't pay Bundini for the Sunday Liston rematch. And because they didn't, they withheld his check. Bundini either tried to sell the belt or there's also stories from his son that suggest he took a hammer and tried to knock some stones out of the belt and pawn them. Uh, Bundini did that out of spite. He didn't steal the belt and you know do it in a sort of underhanded way. He was hurt and upset because they didn't pay him for the fight. And Ali fired him and they were distant from each other for a period of time, about a year and a half. But Ali always brought him back. And it was Gene Kilroy who ran Ali's training camp who said to me, you know, when he would fire Bundini over something and, you know, Ali wouldn't be working as hard in the gym as maybe he should be. And he said, I would wait for Ali to get in a good mood. And I'd always say to him, 
don't you think it's quiet around here? We should probably bring Drew back, don't you think? And Ollie would always do it. <laughs> do we have a definitive story? As I recall in there, you say that the champ gave him that belt. Do we know really what happened? Well, that is true. Everyone I've talked to who are, who are part of that entourage said when Ali pulled the improbable upset and beat Sonny Liston, he gave the belt to Brundini as a gift. Because remember, he joined the team right before the fight, and he told Brundini, you're the reason I pulled it off. So he gave him the belt as a gift. So, you know, it's your corner man usually brings the belt into the ring anyways. So it was Bundini's to sort of keep, you know, for each fight. And when uh, Bundini wasn't paid, he was hurt over that. He either sold it or knocked the stones out. You know, his son suggested he never really sold the belt, that he had taken a hammer to it because he was angry over not being paid. And then once it was damaged, Ali didn't want it back. <laughs> <laughs> he would have plenty more to come, right? <laughs> so <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. And, you know, the, despite all the belt stuff, Boudini was there for every major fight of Ali's career for the next 21 years. So apparently Ali wasn't too upset about it. And, you know, Kalia Ali, who was Muhammad Ali's wife at the time, said Ali could have gave a damn about the belt. He didn't he didn't care about the belt. He wasn't materialistic. They had their little tiff. They forgave each other and went on. Speaking of Drew the Third again, Bondini's son, and the things that he would have had from these fights, you discuss a box of memorabilia and the things that he showed you, in addition to just being so generous with his time and yeah. answering all kinds of questions from you, giving you stories about his father. You even speculate he his haircut. He had his haircut a little bit like like his father at the time. Like really give you the full experience as if you were meeting your subject. That's right. How do the keepsakes you don't mention in the book help you get to know your subject? Because you mentioned this box, you mentioned just a maybe even just one thing out of it, and I thought, well, that that's a mystery box to me. So, <laughs> what things were in that box that that you didn't mention in the book? Let me tell you, it was boxes, plural. I mean, it wasn't just one. I mean, that was the box I wrote about for that day. But, I mean, I probably looked at hundreds of photographs. I had personal notes from Bundini to his son. I had postcards from Ali to Drew Brown III. Bundini's son grew up thinking of Ali as like his big brother. So I had notes from Rhoda Palestine to her husband. I had all of Bundini's writings his poetry. He tried to write a screenplay. He tried to write uh, <laughs> a book on motivational speaking. He wrote. He tried to write about working with Sugar Ray in those training camps. So really, the writings were such an integral part of piecing together the puzzle because I had the man's own words and his sort of inner thoughts. Uh, what was interesting to me is regardless of whatever he was writing about or putting his thoughts down, it always turned back to God. He loved to talk about God. He loved talking about Shorty. And no matter what the subject was, it inevitably turned to his spirituality. And that was something I picked up on really early in the game. Uh, I even got to hold his jewelry. I got to look at his uh, Star David necklace, his rings. Uh, you know, it was like piecing the man back together again. It was an amazing experience. That was the next thing I wanted to ask about is that you do write in Bundini, don't believe the hype, that talking about God was his favorite thing to do. Here he marries this Orthodox Jewish woman. He's sporting a star of David. When Ali converts to the nation of Islam, he's telling him, hey, they're telling you the white man is the devil. Does that mean my son is a half a devil? Mm -hmm. After you get to the top with Ali, you mention the concept of the yes man. There's so few people who will be willing to challenge him on anything in his life. And it, it really speaks to his 
credit in his character, Ali, that he does keep this man around because he could have had anybody in there and he, he couldn't have cared maybe that he lost a couple of fights because he just didn't want to have his worldview challenged. And think, this think is, you know, this. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who say, you know, oh, Bundini was just a yes man. What he know about boxing? You, really, Bundini in some ways was Ali's only connection to reality. Imagine if everyone told you you were the most handsome, beautiful, best thing ever to happen in the world. He wasn't just great. People called him the greatest, the greatest ever. So really, every time you tell a joke, everyone laughs. Every woman you meet thinks you're the most handsome guy in the world. Every guy you meet wants to be just like you. You're the celebrity of all celebrities in sports. The one person who would say... No, you're wrong, champ, was Bundini in a lot of ways. You know, Angelo was one of those guys who he was there for the strategy and the boxing. Bundini would call him out on the contradictions in his life. Bundini would question him on things, like you said, about issues of race and religion in the nation of Islam. Bundini was the opposite of yes, man. <laughs> he was like the friend you have who uh, tells you the truth you don't want to hear, but you're glad they did. That's who Bundini was, and that's one of the reasons Ali kept him around is because it was a little touch of reality, a little somebody who's not just going to tell you what you think. Because if Bundini was a yes man, he wouldn't have been fired seven or eight times. He, he was fired seven or eight times because he did speak his mind, and the champ didn't always like it. Now, dear listeners, you hear here Todd Snyder talk about Bundini, and you heard him before say that people said that he could make the – the hair on your arm stand up. Well, I'm getting goosebumps <laughs> just with that little passage. Are you talking about this man? And I hope that if you want something like that, something uplifting, pick up Bundini. Don't believe the hype because the book really makes you feel that way. And little things like this phrase he has, blue eyes and brown eyes, see grass green. Yeah. He's somebody who's just so loving. And you talk about the street poet hat that he wears at times. And you mentioned before, if he was listening to this, what he would have to say, how he would jump in. And heck, from beyond the grave here, he reached down to me. <laughs> you know, He's up there with, with Shorty and said to me, hey, mention that thing about the African-Americans. I want people to know that, you know, there's only one race and everybody came from Africa. So oh, don't be hung up on that. And that's right. Fight for what's right. Get inside people. And that's the important thing. Good people and bad people. What do you think he'd want readers to learn from how he approached these issues of race and religion when they pick up Bundini? What's interesting is that when I was writing this book, you know, most of this stuff happened way before I was born. I was born in 1981. So Ali fought his last fight in December of 1981, two weeks before I was born. So I never you know, had the chance to watch Ali live. I've watched him through documentaries and all of this stuff. I'm digging deep into history to sort of bring it to life. But what really surprised me about this project is how much it feels like a now book, because Bundini's message was, let's come together. Let's celebrate our differences, but let's also realize that we're not all that different, in, uh, you know, really, uh, when it comes down to it. He was the guy who uh, he believed in the goodness in people, and he believed in taking chances on people. And he also believed it's OK to make a mistake. Let me tell you a story. This isn't in the book. Gene Kilroy said one time he had loaned Bundini some money and he said a couple of weeks went by and uh, Bundini hadn't thanked him for it. And he said, I told my, you know, told my wife, that kind of makes me mad. He should have thanked me. I gave him some money. And, he, you know, so I guess he called Bundini up and said, hey, did you get the money I sent you? And he said, of course I did. Thank you. He said, well, how come you hadn't called and thanked me yet? And Bundini said, well, I thought I was your friend. And he said, well, yeah, you're my friend. He said, well, then, you know, I didn't think, you know, it needed a thank you. And he said they talked for about 15, 20 minutes. 
He said, I hung up the phone and realized that, you know, what was I, what was I needing that thank you for? What, what's wrong with me that I needed him to validate me in that way? <laughs> yeah. And he said, he had totally talked me out of being mad. And that was the magic of Bundini is that, you know, he was one of those guys who you couldn't be mad at for very long because he saw the goodness in people. And regardless of whether or not he got on your nerves or maybe, you know, told you what you didn't want to hear, he had the, this sort of homespun wisdom, wisdom about him that won you over in the end, just like it did Gene. I have to mention one quick thing from your acknowledgments, and that's it's common to say all these people are not really doing anything who are writing their books in Starbucks. But <laughs> in your acknowledgments of Bundini, don't believe the hype, you thank the good folks at the Starbucks on Troy Schenectady Road in Latham, New York. <laughs> what did they mean to completing the book? And did you really write every word of it sitting there in a Starbucks? Uh, I'm telling you right now, I wrote every single word at the same Starbucks <laughs> at the same table and usually at the same time of day. I'm a, I'm a the kind of person who I like to punch in and punch out. And when I'm on the clock, I work really hard. And when I'm off the clock, I leave it I leave it alone. I got into this nice little writing groove at the Starbucks, and it was on my way to work, on my way to my college. And I would go there and write five or six hours a day and, you know, put my time in, and then I would go to work and have the other part of my life. And through the course of the 14, 16 months that I was there working on the book, all of the baristas and some of the folks who frequent the Starbucks got to know me and got to know what I was working on because I would always have a big stack of Muhammad Ali books, you know, that I would bring in and sit <laughs> on the table. And occasionally I would get phone calls from Larry Holmes or some of these famous boxing guys, and I would have to go out on the patio and do the interviews uh, and record them on my digital uh, Sony recorder. And the the baristas would watch my computer and watch my stuff while I was doing the interviews. <laughs> So I just it just felt natural to thank them because, you know, I used their space <laughs> to write this book. And I'm a little bit like athletes. I'm superstitious. It was just coming out and it was working. So I, I, I said, why well, if it's not broke, don't change it. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> Keep sitting there and, and have your time. I bet, you know, the Wi-Fi password by heart. Yeah, I guess you say <laughs> you go in there anytime and be comfortable. The problem, though, because of uh, the covid pandemic, you know, I've, the book I'm working oh, on yeah. now, I've had to write from home. So I've had to get out of that groove and, and get into a new habit. But yeah, I wrote every word of it there. Scout's honor. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they put a book cover up on the, on the wall there. Cause if I ever pass by, I'm going to go in and look for it. I used to tease the, one of the baristas. I would say, you know, there should be a plaque here. You know, the Bundini don't believe the hype was written at this exact table. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Get a little plaque on there. That sounds like a That's good idea. Right. People want to pick it up and, and it's inspiring to people too, as well. We talk about motivating and inspiration so much here in Bundini that you really can do it. I mean, I know obviously you, you've written other books and, and you're, you have a, a resume and, and a lot behind you to have done this. You have a great subject, but it's still important to sit down you have the greatest topic and the greatest subject in the world and you could be waking up in the middle of the night and and hearing bundini say to you why aren't you working on my book and <laughs> you know so you still needed that dedication and that follow-through not to just sit in your corner and say eh, cut the gloves off i want to just go play video games or i want to just go watch boxing for, for yeah. 10 hours so uh, i just thought that was an important part of it deep, deep into this research, I started dreaming about Bundini. I'm, I, I swear to God, I'm wow. not making that up. I, I had dreams about Bundini because I was, I was that deep into the research and that deep in the, to working on it day in and day out that, uh, you know, I had three or four Bundini dreams. Was it just everyday <laughs> stuff or did he have something to say to you? I would always dream I was back in West Virginia and he would be there and just be part of the family around everyone. 
And of course, I told this to his son and he said, well, daddy's with you. That means you're, you're on the right path. He's visiting you. He's checking you out. <laughs> you know, his son is not much different than him. He's very spiritual. There were two or three of those dreams where Bundini was there back with me in West Virginia for whatever reason. I guess he was doing a little research on me. <laughs> <laughs> They're about to ring the final bell for us. So I'll throw one final punch to you. Bundini tells this amazing story of boxing's greatest motivator. And to go again to your experience now being a professor, motivating young people in particular is a hard thing to do. It's hard for parents. It's hard for teachers and professors, people at all level of education. If you have somebody working on your staff, it's a, it's a common refrain to, for people in management to complain. We can't get these kids to do anything or, or they're looking into it. They're saying, how do we find a way to get these kids motivated? These young people. I mean, I say kids, but they're about the, they're older than Muhammad Ali was when he starts out first meets Bondini. Right. So. To me, because I find that mentoring relationship so important, especially as you speak about young men and helping them realize what it means to be a man and everybody to realize what it means to be the greatest. Why should listeners pick up Bundini, Don't Believe the Hype, to meet the man himself, to get inspired, but also maybe learn something about bringing out the greatness in others? Here's the thing. We've all had a Bundini in our life. Some people, it's a teacher. Some people, it's their husband, their wife. Sometimes it's a coach. Sometimes it's your best friend. But we all have that person who makes us want to be better. We all have that person who gives us the hard truth. We all have that person who, you know, can make us madder than anyone, but also can inspire us like no one else. And I think no matter who you are, even if you don't watch boxing or care much about boxing history, some of these teachings and some of these lessons will resonate with the Bundini you've had in your life. The one I love and the one I'll always remember is Bundini had this phrase. He would call it getting the gas. And he would say, how you get out of bed in the morning determines the kind of day you're going to have. You have to get up and get gas and fill the gas tank, so to speak, so that in the 15th round, you've got a little energy left. You've got a little fuel. And I've tried ever since I, I, I studied that philosophy and looked at how it impacted Ali's career. I've tried to get out of bed with a positive attitude every day. Even in 2020, with all the bad that, you know, that we've had to deal with in the world, you got to get out of bed and get the gas anyways. You got to get out of bed like a champ. Some of those philosophies you can take in your own life, regardless of whether or not you're interested in the sport of boxing or even Muhammad Ali. Go out and do the road work, That's everybody. Right. That's the important thing, you know. Do it. Right. Sit down in the Starbucks. Right. And I am so happy that I picked up this book. I want to thank Lisa Warren, who is the PR person. I've worked with her a bunch of times. Just really professional. It was really great of her to send this along. I, I always at least give the book a look, and I can't always make one fit in. This one, am I ever glad that she sent it to me? Bundini, don't believe the hype. Todd D. Snyder, I could talk forever about this. I think I stand in for most listeners who maybe don't know too much about boxing beyond the basics of the sport. Anybody can pick up this book. Definitely believe my hype about this book. I'm no Bundini here, but the important thing is go and try to be the Bundini for somebody else. You see somebody who needs some help, if they're receptive, try to call them out on things. Don't just let them pass through your life. Maybe someday we'll be sitting here talking about a book and Todd will be writing a book about you and how you really changed the world and add a fighter whatever endeavor that they are fighting in, whatever field, whatever ring, who went out and changed the world and shocked the world. Thank you for your time today, for introducing me to Bundini. My life is richer from having read the book and now from having spoken to you today. I wish you the best of luck with it, and I hope that you're back in that Starbucks soon enough and completing your next book. All right, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I've really enjoyed our conversation. 
We get up in the morning feeling tired. Sometimes we feel good, sometimes bad. But we go through it with feeling. He was the guy who made you believe you could do it. I must be the greatest! You better believe this hype. Again, the book is Bundini. Don't believe the hype. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. I can't thank Todd D. Snyder enough for going a few rounds with us about Bundini. Not just because I enjoyed hearing him talk, but because he did a real service to history by bringing to life this inspirational man, introducing us to the motivational spirit behind Muhammad Ali, who's still a household name and an American icon. You can find Todd D. Snyder online at hillbillyspeaks.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And while you're at it, you can find me on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at The History Author Show, or facebook.com slash historyauthor. That's it for this ringside installment of The History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. Or if you're an iTunes subscriber, I hope you'll take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Everybody needs a Bundy.